Good morning. The reading this morning is uh, from chapter 5 of Zechariah, uh, verses through uh, 5 through to 11, the end of the chapter. Then the angel who was speaking to me came forward and said to me, Look up and see what this is that is appearing. I asked, What is it? He replied, It is a measuring basket. And he added, This is the iniquity of the people throughout the land. Then the cover of lead was raised, and there in the basket sat a woman. He said, This is wickedness. And he pushed her back into the basket and pushed the lead cover down over its mouth. Then I looked up, and there before me were two women with the wind in their wings. They had wings, wings like those of a stork, and they lifted up the basket between heaven and earth. Where are they taking the basket? I asked the angel who was speaking to me. He replied, To the country of Babylonia to build the house for it. When it is ready, the basket will be set there in its place. Good morning. Let's pray as we open up the word of God together. Our God and King, our Lord and Father, we pray that as we open up this part of your word that you might challenge and convict us. We pray that you might give us the eyes and the hearts to see the things that we are clinging to that we ought to let go of. We pray that you might help us to trust in you and your word. And we pray that we might find more joy and more delight in who you are because of your word here this morning. Amen. Well, uh, some of you have been asking across this series, what, what's with the graphic? What's with the, the vision? What's going on with the picture? Well, today we come to it, Zechariah chapter 5, uh, and we're going to just jump straight into it. We're going to just jump straight into it. We get in verse 5, Then the angel of the Lord who was speaking came forward to me and said, Look up and see what is appearing. So something is happening, something is coming up, something is becoming clear. And what is it, I asked? He replied, it is a basket. And he added, this is the iniquity of the people throughout the land. Then the cover of lead was raised, and there in the basket sat a woman. And he said, this is wickedness. And he pushed her back into the basket and pushed its lead cover down onto it. So he sees a basket, and in the basket he sees this woman, and the Lord is seemingly lifting up the basket and shutting the woman inside the basket, kind of putting the lid on and screwing it tight so that not even your husband will be able to open that jar. And not just is the lid put on, but it is thrown to the ends of the earth. It is cast beyond the horizon. And what is the woman representative of? She is a personification of wickedness. Whose wickedness? God's people. That is, that God's people are not perfect. We don't get it all right. That God's people 
are not a clean people, and this is what we've seen all throughout Zechariah. God's people are those who do struggle with selfishness, who do struggle with wickedness, who do give in to temptation that, that we ought not to pretend what we are not. But the Lord has taken, and notice who's active in this whole vision, the Lord has taken the wickedness of his people and he has enclosed it in this basket, in this jar. And he says that this woman, which is most likely kind of an idol, she's most likely kind of, uh, at that time in the ancient Near East, there were these statues to foreign gods, and many of them were in the kind of shape and form of a woman. They were female goddesses. And that's kind of what is seemingly kind of going on here, that is this idol statue of a female god that from a foreign nation put into the jar. And what we need to remember is that God's people, they have been in exile, they have lived in a foreign country, in a foreign land, speaking foreign language for 70 years. For the sole purpose of assimilation. Of assimilation. To become like the other nations. And if you've ever lived overseas, if you've ever lived in a a foreign land, it doesn't take you very long before you start to pick up the language yourself before you start to pick up the accent, right? My uh, my father is uh, from England, and after just a very short time here in um, Australia, he went back to England, and they all thought, you've got an Australian accent. And he'd been over here for about four years. Still hates Vegemite. It's one of the great tragedies, and yet I persist as a son, you know. 70 years, that means that for Israel, they have 60-year-old men that have never known what it is to be in their home country. 60-year-old men that have spent their whole life in a foreign country's marketplace where there are other gods, temples, customs, prayers you pray for eating a meal. And so uh, what this vision is seemingly saying is that um, as you return, as you now rebuild and reestablish Israel, The danger is, right, that you are going to take some of these foreign gods and you are going to bring them back into my land amongst my people here and some of these customs, some of these prayers, some of these rituals or tendencies are going to bleed in to my people, to the new Israel. 
And just like termites in the wall, they will start to eat it from the inside out. And so the termites have to be removed. There has to be a a getting rid of it. If you have a termite problem, you can't just paint new paint on the walls. The termites have to be removed, and that is what is on view here. That they are not, that the lid is closed and is shut away, never to escape, never to eat, never to destroy again. And we would be fools if we thought that that was Israel's danger, Israel's problem and not ours in the church in the 21st century. Because we live as a people amongst other nations, amongst other people groups, amongst other worldviews, and we would be fools if we did not think that some of those worldviews bleed into the church. where we start to think through a different worldview rather than through the gospel. And so when we hear things like idolatry, or when we hear things like worshipping or following other gods, we tend to think of things like Hinduism or Buddha, or we think of kind of pictures of people sacrificing their children uh, at statues or altars of bulls. And we go, okay, we won't do that here at church. Or we won't do that through the week. Ernest Becker is um, uh, a writer. He, in 1973, uh, won the Pulitzer Prize. He is not a Christian, uh, a very secular man, and yet a, a brilliant, brilliant writer. And he wrote, Uh, In his book, The Denial of Death, he wrote this. He says, there is a massive problem. This is kind of what he's touching on. I've jumped too early. He says, he doesn't believe in God, and yet he recognizes that there is a problem of not believing in God. All through his book, Denial of Death, he talks about that if you don't have a God, that there is a tendency to take something else in your life and to turn it into a God. And so he gives this example. We see how modern people have put themselves in an impossible position. Modern secular people still need to feel like their lives matter. In the grand scheme of things, they need to feel that there is something, some higher meaning and that they have or will experience some great love. But if there is no longer any God, how are we supposed to do this? One of the first ways that occurred to the modern person is what's been called the romantic solution, the self-glorification that we need in our innermost being. Now, in many cases, we look to get from our love partner. The lover becomes the way to fulfill one's very life. 
The worth and meaning now you want comes from the loved one. The romantic option may be ingenious and it may be creative, but it is a lie that must fail. What is it we want, he says, when we elevate the love partner to the position of God? We want redemption. Nothing less. We want to be rid of our faults. We want to be rid of our nothingness. That's why we fall in love, because we want to be justified. We want to know that our existence is not in vain. We run to the love partner for validation. We expect them to make us good, to make us real. Through love, needless to say, human beings cannot do this. Incredibly insightful. Again, not a Christian, just a man writing on his observations. And what he's saying is that worship is not something done in foreign lands, in faraway places. Worship is something that is done front and center stage of the human heart. And it's not that a good marriage is not a good thing. A good marriage is a great thing. But he say, what he's saying is that the temptation when we remove God out of the picture can be that we seek romance or we seek the love partner to fulfill what only God can fulfill. We seek for them to fulfill the nothingness that we so often feel. It is, and we can do the same with career. We can do the same with our looks or ability. We can do the same with our finances. Dick Keyes said this. He said, idols are not just found on pagan altars, but in well-educated human hearts and minds. The Bible does not allow us to marginalize idolatry to the fringes of life. It is found on center stage and if you want to know what the idols of your heart are here's kind of and i'm stealing this from someone else but here's what i tend to think here's what is a good test don't look to your dreams look to your nightmares What is it that if it was to be taken from you, that you feel to some degree like your whole world would collapse? Not just that you would be scared, but that you're not sure whether you would be able to keep going. Is it your, is it your family? Is it your career? This is why when the GFC hit, suicide rates um, on Wall Street went through the roof.
What is your greatest fear? For some of you, your greatest fear is that your children are going to struggle with their sexuality or your children are going to struggle with kind of gender fluidity or perhaps that your children are never going to get married and be single. What about if they're never Christian? Maybe, maybe... Choose, okay, I'll have, if they struggle with these things but love Jesus, that is enough. What is it that we are pursuing? What are the idols of our culture that bleed in? Because what Zechariah 5 is getting at is that idolatry, the wickedness and selfishness of idolatry cannot coexist with God. That one displaces the other. And so this is why the, this is why the woman is trapped in the jar and being removed. Why? Because what's the promise of Zechariah? This first half of Zechariah, the promise has been the Lord is coming back. He's moving back in. He's moving back in. And so the idols of the nations have to move out. That one must displace the other, that they cannot coexist. They are like oil and water like forks and toasters, like your foot and Lego. Like gluten-free biscuits and flavour. I can keep going, right? Like my wife and spiders. They cannot coexist, right? One is going to displace the other. Like prayer and bitterness. Dietrich Bonhoeffer, who wrote in Nazi Germany, lived in Nazi Germany, he was a pastor there, and he said that he finds when he is bitter and frustrated and resentful of someone, that prayer falls out the window. And then he says when he arrests his heart and brings that person before the Lord in, in thankfulness, giving God, giving thanks to God for them, he says prayer seeming, uh, bit, the bitterness that once clung so deeply and filled his heart seems to dissipate. That the two cannot be in the same room, that one pushes the other out. That the Lord is returning to his people and so he is shutting the lid and dispersing, displacing the wickedness of his people. And this is 
good news. This is great news. And we'll get there, verse 9. So verse 9, then I looked up and there before me were two women with the wind in their wings. That That's kind of almost like a the wind was at their backs. Right, so if you're a sailor or if you're a runner, you know, or if you're flying, having the wind at your back means you've, you're making great time. And the wind in their wings. They had wings like those of a stork. Uh, in the ancient Near East, the stork was famous for having the strongest wings of any bird. And they were also famous for having uh, the furthest migration journey. And so the point is this. He, he sees two women with these wings and, and their wind is at their wings. And these wings are the strongest wings that fly the furthest of any animal that they knew. And they lifted up the basket between heaven and earth. Where are they taking the basket, I asked. The angel who was speaking to me, he replied to the country of Babylonia, or or Babel, depending on the translation, to build a house for it. When the house is ready, the basket will will be set there in its place. That as far as the east is from the west, so far will he cast our wickedness from us. That sin, wickedness, the things that plague our hearts and our minds, that they will not just be removed from our hearts, but be cast from our sights. that they will be sent beyond the horizon and beyond the horizon of the horizon. Never to be seen again. That sin, that wickedness, which nailed Jesus to the cross, that shed his own blood, that it will not have the last laugh, that it will not have the final word. But that one day, one day, the Lord will come, and sin and wickedness from his people will be removed, not just from their hearts, but from their very presence. That one day you will wake and you will see the sunrise and and never again will your mind struggle with double-mindedness. Never again will the burdens and the anxieties of sin Touch your heart. Not for 10,000 years will you feel its weight. For he will have removed it. 
and he has closed the lid and sent it into the abyss. That one day when he will return. How about I pray? Father, we long for that day, that day when you will come, when you will come back again and you will remove, not just, you have removed the punishment of our sin, you will, you are removing, um, the power of sin in us, but you will remove even the presence of sin, not just from your people, but from the land. That never again will we long for things that we hate, that never again will we long for things that only bring pain and brokenness and sprout shame and guilt, that that never again will those things touch our mind or our hearts or our flesh. And so we pray and so we cry out for you, O King of Kings, to come back, to come to draw near. And so we sing, O come, O come, Emmanuel. Amen.